The Postal Service is scaling back the scope of its next-generation vehicle contract, but making a bigger commitment to electric vehicles. USPS says it now plans to order the minimum number of custom-built vehicles its contract with Oshkosh Defense allows. It's also planning to buy tens of thousands of commercial off-the-floor vehicles over two years, of which the Postal Service promises 40 percent will be electric. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. All right, so outline this new plan for us, Jory. From whom, quantities, and timelines? Yes, yeah, it's a pretty significant departure from what USPS originally planned here. The agency just announced that they are, for now, only going to buy the 50,000 next-generation delivery vehicles they ordered back in March. That is the bare minimum that is allowed under this 10-year contract with Oshkosh Defense. And what is significant here is that out of that 50,000-vehicle order, Half of them, no less than half of them, are going to be electric vehicles. That is a big evolution from USPS initially saying that it was going to order 5,000 electric vehicles from that order. And then they said, no, wait, we'll do 10,000. And now we're looking at 25,000 electric vehicles from that order. So Oshkosh builds both, in other words. They built both, yeah. This is a big departure, as you say, from the original, which was going to be all gas-powered with air conditioning and some nice amenities for the postal deliverers. Well, the original plan was that the Postal Service was going to have a vast majority of gas-powered vehicles. And what they said at the time when they were looking at their finances, USPS said we can do minimum 10% electric vehicles, and they were going to order up to 165 thousand next generation delivery vehicles. So that's more than three times what they're ordering currently. All right. And what about the charging and the infrastructure to support electric vehicles? Because you can't just plug them in at night. It would take three days to charge the darn things. So you have to buy these expensive chargers that have to plug into the electric grid. Does Postal Service have a plan to go along with all of these electrics so that they can be useful to the Postal Service? They do have a plan for that. And that fits into some ongoing work in terms of USPS looking at its delivery network, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy recently shed some light on this. What they want to do is consolidate some of the postal annexes and post offices out there, the letter carrier base of operations, and they want to consolidate that into the sorting operations and basically have these massive warehouse-like facilities. And what they're able to do if that goes ahead is that they will have more real estate to charge a bunch of vehicles all in one spot rather than a bunch of chargers all over the place. Interesting. So the vehicles will have to use half their charge getting from these central places to where they're actually delivering the mail. I'm just kidding, but who knows what the actual distances are. And no chance of outsourcing it all to Amazon, which has great big giant warehouses that they could squeeze Postal into. Certainly uh, (laughs) something that we might see in the public comments on this. uh, (laughs) Right. In the coming weeks. All right. And the purpose of having the electric, it's congressional pressure, correct? Because some members of Congress think electric cars reduce pollution. Is that the basic operating principle here? Yeah, this fleet acquisition plan has gotten a lot of criticism from members of Congress. Some have proposed even legislation that would give the Postal Service some appropriations to have a higher commitment to electric vehicles. None of that has materialized. However, what we've seen also is a number of lawsuits raising concerns about the Postal Service uh, not investing more heavily in electric vehicles. Lawsuits from So from a number of states, we saw the state of California lead at least 10 other states in 
a lawsuit challenging this. We also saw some environmental justice groups advance their own lawsuit. All right. And what about the existing fleet? Because this is going to be phased in and they have to still deliver the mail while this all gets phased in, while the vehicles are built. And I imagine they have to have acceptance testing and so forth. So this is not happening overnight. What are they doing for the meantime? What's interesting in this new plan is that the Postal Service says they're going to now need to make a significant investment in the fleet it already has. They're going to work on repairing some 50,000 aging long life vehicles, emphasis on long there. Some of these vehicles have been out on the road for 30 plus years. They say that this is not ideal. You know, these are vehicles that will put more emissions out into the air. But given everything that we've talked about here, their hands kind of forced. Well, they're doing work, and so therefore they're operating. Maybe they could send them all to California and say, take that, but that's not going to happen either. And what about those commercial off-the-shelf vehicles that they can buy right away? I said commercial off-the-floor, to be technically accurate It'll be a big shelf. Yeah, right. What are they, and where are they coming from? Yeah, DeJoy has said time and again that USPS needs vehicles yesterday, that that is his biggest concern, that they are aging, that they are catching on fire sometimes, which is a problem. And so what they're going to do as a stopgap is that they're going to order 34,000 commercial off-the-shelf vehicles over a two-year period. That's pretty quick compared to the 10-year vehicle contract for the next-generation vehicles. And when you do the math here, the 50,000 next-gen and the 34,000 commercial off-the-shelf, that's 84,000 vehicles. And 40% of those are going to be electric vehicles. Well, there are electric vans and electric delivery types of things that are out there. The question is, can they do taxicab-like service? Stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. For that matter, even the conventional commercial gas cars. I mean, they had an experiment a number of years ago. They bought a whole bunch of Ford Windstar vans, and the things fell apart pretty much pretty quickly because they weren't that good to start with. And in doing that kind of taxi-style duty, stop and go, stop and go, worse than taxi, constant stop and go and up and down and closed and shut, they just didn't hold up. So it really is a stopgap. What does Louis DeJoy say about all of this? DeJoy has repeatedly said that he's not opposed to electric vehicles. He'll buy as many as he can and where it makes sense. The Postal Service has been hard up for cash in recent years. It's looking better. Congress passed some reform on that effort. But what he has said is that more than anything else, he just needs new vehicles regardless of what they run on. And He actually spoke about this at a conference last month in Chicago. Here he outlines kind of his thinking. I've been saying this from the day we bought it. I need to get vehicles and we'll explore electric vehicles as it makes financial sense. You know, there'll be a lot of politicians saying they forced us into this, this, that. Not so, right? This is going to be a financial, ongoing financial analysis for both service and uh, where it applies and where we can accommodate, we're going to do it, just like I said from the beginning. That's right. Politicians never push the Postal Service to do anything. So this plan now is semi-final. Semi-final, you know, of course, subject to change, as we have seen already, that this has been an evolution. But this is the current plan that the agency is going to proceed with. All right, Postal Service, get your motors running. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up 
through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards 
two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.